Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we discussed the social, political, and religious changes that took place in Europe that were necessary for the witch trials of the early modern period to occur. On this episode, we'll talk about what the trials looked like, who was put on trial, some of the more famous witch hunts, and why the phenomenon finally disappeared. As with the first part, this episode does contain some mature content, just to let you know ahead of time. Let's begin. All right, we're back on HI101. I'm here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. So last time we talked about sort of how we got society in early modern Europe to a point where people were kind of capable of believing in witches. And it sort of, you know, when you look backwards, it's kind of clear how certain steps all sort of kind of, how certain steps lined up to create that belief system. But, I mean, without one or two of those steps, that easily could have fallen apart. So let's talk about who was being accused of witchcraft and why. The typical witch, when you kind of look at sort of an average of everybody that was ever accused of witchcraft, was almost always female. Now, that's a little bit more subject to regional changes. Uh, for example, in, in Iceland, uh, something like 85% of accused witches were male. Hmm. At least a third of accused witches in Russia were male. I mean, it, it really depends on the region. But a lot of what we're talking about with the witch trials are either Germany or, to a lesser extent, France. It, it, was, it was very, very heavy in Germany, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, so almost always female, almost always very poor. It's very, very rare that you'll see nobility mm-hmm. accused of witchcraft. Generally disliked by the community. So uh, uh, almost always uh, an outsider of some sort. Mm-hmm. They may have had some knowledge of folk remedies, but definitely not always. I mean, you'll hear some people talk about uh, the witch trials as being sort of a, a focused method of kind of eradicating this, this older knowledge in favor of what the church knew or later on sort of uh, burgeoning scientific method. That's not really the case when you look at the numbers. The thing is that knowing some folk remedies would look bad if you were accused of witchcraft, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily enough on its own. It's not like a prerequisite for... No, in fact, a lot of the time, you want to keep those people in your village because they aren't really doctors. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone (laughs) around who knows how to... Yeah. uh, I mean, especially if they have midwife experience, Mm -hmm. you want them around. You're not accusing them of witchcraft just because they know those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were lots of instances of these sort of village healers who were the ones who did the accusations of witchcraft against other members of the community. Mm. So that's definitely not a clear cut boundary. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, just because you know, that stuff is not going to get you accused of witchcraft. Now, mind you, if you were being accused of witchcraft and you knew that stuff, it looked really bad because what you had had, as we talked about last time is this demonization of ritual magics And a lot of the stuff that they talked about people doing in ritual magic to summon demons didn't look that different from what you might do as part of a folk remedy Mm -hmm. um, medically. I mean, uh, knowledge of different herbs having different effects on the body, anything to do with uh, mixing any poultices looks a lot like the sort of mixing um, potions that people were doing for ritual magic. Mm -hmm. And what we're sort of looking at in 
a broader view of of what people thought witches could could do was anything that didn't have an obvious cause effect relationship. And what I mean by that is that if if you had a really bad growth year, if your crops failed really badly, but you didn't really know why, you would look around for a reason why. And one of the most ready uh, explanations of something like that happening would be witchcraft. Mm -hmm. Because we didn't really understand agriculture well enough to kind of look at the, the numerous causes of something like a, a bad crop yield. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't have been tracking the temperature or the rainfall from day to day, which could kind of show a trend like that. They wouldn't be able to, say, measure the pH of the soil. I mean, like, there's there's so many things today that explain all of this stuff away that they just didn't have access to. Mm-hmm. Witchcraft. Now, the problem with that, and also with the demonization of all magic because of uh, ritual magics, saying that anything uh, magical is inherently evil because even if it's for a good purpose, it's using evil means. Mm-hmm. Means that if I have a splitting headache and I go to the village healer and she gives me a tea to drink, which happens to be made from willow bark, and my headache goes away, they just gave me a tea and my headache is gone. That's magic. Magic mm-hmm. is bad. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And, and it seems ridiculous, but... When that's all you have in terms of tools to examine the world around you, mm-hmm. it's a viable option. Yeah. So It's easy to see how people would come to that conclusion. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's see, what else about a typical witch? They, would, they, they might have had some unorthodox beliefs, uh, by which I mean just not exactly in line with the, uh, with the church. That could come out a number of ways or come about a number of ways. You could be in, you know, if we're talking post-Reformation, you could be in a state where, you know, you personally feel more in in line with Catholic beliefs, but it happens to be a Protestant state. That's a little bit more likely to get you uh, accused of witchcraft. You could also subscribe to certain heretical beliefs. I mean, when they slaughtered the Waldensians and the Cathars, they didn't get all of them. I mean, those people did kind of dispersed throughout the region. Mm-hmm. So you you could have some heritage of one of the heresies. You might be either openly or secretly Jewish. Hmm. And I mean the Jews in Europe could could they could they could take their own podcast. There's so much material there that's very interesting stuff. But the thing about the the Jewish community was that they were often unwilling to assimilate completely with the rest of the society and as such they were seen as outsiders living among them so when you're worried about this sort of subversive element of society it's a really easy target to look at uh, the Jewish community that's nearby and say well if anyone here is enough of an outsider to say cause this this disease that's going around right now it's probably them Mm So being Jewish or even of Jewish heritage, but having uh, converted is enough to garner some some scrutiny. Or, I mean, and this is something that is sort of caused by the way Christianity spread through Europe, there were certain elements, and I mean, it's really difficult to say how much, like how common this is, or even whether or not it happened at all, but a lot of scholars think that it did. When Christianity spread across Europe, especially across Germany, what it ran into is a lot of sort of local sort of shamanistic belief systems Mm -hmm. that rather than forcing people into uh, a certain way of of reading Christianity, they would often use that and incorporate it into the local understanding of Christianity. And they would do that by... Things like allowing what had been major uh, holidays to continue as holidays, but rather than being for uh, a local shrine or a local uh, deity or what have you, they would sort of refocus it towards a a Christian element. Mm -hmm. Occasionally what they would do was make a local deity into a a saint. So they would sort of incorporate that, that deity into... The, the pantheon, if you will, of, of Christian saints. And then it's okay for people to still venerate this this aspect that they've always held mm-hmm. as, as divine, but do so in a non-heretical way. Mm-hmm. And so this allowed Christianity to spread really quickly, but it also 
made a sort of hodgepodge of beliefs if you got right down to the local level. Right. And I mean, most likely, when you look at the structure of things, the place where that hinges is the local priest, like the parish priest, because the the local people would have no idea that their beliefs were unorthodox in any way. Mm -hmm. And the church in Rome would really not know about the very specific local holidays that were happening. What would happen was that the parish priest would would recognize that, you know, whatever. A good example is the um, the Day of the Dead celebrations in Mexico, mm -hmm. right? That's not really... It, it doesn't come from the Bible, let's just put it that way. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, but it's filled with uh, very Catholic influences, right? Mm -hmm. And they've clearly taken very, very old ideas and very old celebrations and incorporated into Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Now, the Catholic Church today doesn't really comment one way or the other on Day of the Dead in Mexico, but it's easier to just let people celebrate that in in a manner that has its roots in um, in paganism, but is being celebrated by Catholic people and with Catholic intentions. Yeah. Right? So what can happen, especially in Europe at that point in time where there's very little communication between Rome and, say, uh, Denmark, mm -hmm. you know, it's very far away, you would have people that were celebrating non-Orthodox holidays. They were, uh, they had non-Orthodox celebrations or, or traditions or sacraments which were meant in all good intentions in uh, a Christian manner, mm -hmm. but weren't necessarily orthodox by the book as the Pope would have it, mm -hmm. right? So with all of these um, heresies that had kind of come up throughout the um, 11th century and on, the church sort of started cracking down on that stuff a little bit. And... As a result, people tended to be a little bit more on the outlook for anything that didn't fit orthodoxy. The common people started being better educated on what was orthodox and what was not. Mm -hmm. And if someone had uh, a propensity towards, for example, and I mean, again, this is a little bit theoretical, but say someone had a propensity towards offering prayers at a certain shrine which had been pagan at one point in time, had now been converted to a shrine to a, a saint, but mm -hmm. maybe this person held a little bit too much of an affinity towards that, that might raise some suspicions. Yeah. And I mean, when you read about this stuff, you can find anything from that's complete and utter nonsense and that never ever happened, to even claims that there may have been people who very specifically venerated Diana, the Roman goddess, mm -hmm. uh, even up until the 15th century. Mm -hmm. That's a really difficult thing to prove. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. I don't know one way or the other, and I don't think anyone's really going to know that for sure. But, I mean, that's one thing that people will point to as a real, and I, I say that with, with air quotes, a real source of this witchcraft scare is these people that might have been worshipping pre-Christian traditions. Okay. Now, again, that's that's a little bit hypothetical, but even, as I said, something that seems slightly off of the Orthodox was enough to get suspicions raised. So the typical witch would probably have something not entirely Orthodox Christian going on. And finally on my list of things that the typical witch tended to be is probably not a witch. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, the people being accused of witchcraft probably weren't doing any witchcraft. They weren't flying off to a witch's sabbat somewhere in the dead of night and, you know, performing these these dark rites. That didn't happen. The thing is, as soon as you've decided that something is going on with an individual, you can find all of the things on the list here. Mm -hmm. If, I mean, the, the, the devil's mark could be, you know, that we talked about, uh, that tended to be on the left side of the body... It could be a mole, it could be a freckle. There was often a, a, a requirement saying that that part of the body had no feeling. If you've got a, a scar anywhere on your left side, that's that's all they need. That's mm -hmm. And it's seen as incontrovertible proof that you have been consorting with the devil. It's really easy to accuse somebody of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. How did they decide that these markings were a symbol of being associated with the devil or witchcraft? Well, the, the theory was that the devil had left this mark physically on the person oh, okay. as a sign of 
like ownership or well it's i mean it's like the dark mark from harry potter right Right. like there's this idea that's for some reason this this evil person has to leave really obvious physical proof of their ownership of the person Voldemort was here yeah exactly like it and i mean that's that's the thing i i alternate when i'm reading about this stuff i alternate between uh incredulity that people actually believe these things in any way shape or form because they seem ridiculous why would the devil mm-hmm. be like okay do my let's secret make work? it really obvious that i was here <laughs> <laughs> let's do, do my secret work don't tell anybody that you're with me by the way i'm leaving my mark on you yeah and just kind of horror that enough people believed it to actually go through with it i mean it's it's yeah it's it's something else so yeah these people oh and and one more thing about the accusation of witches there were almost always four or more people that spoke out against a person Mm -hmm. before they got really seriously examined as a witch and i think that the key here is that these people tended to be asocial they tended to be on the fringes of the society that they lived in i think what it comes down to is that if you have problems with something or other and you're looking for some sort of victim to blame or some sort of source of the problem to blame Mm -hmm. if your choices are between your one neighbor who you see uh for sunday dinner every week and makes really good pies or your other neighbor who never comes out to anything has missed church three times in the last six months Mm -hmm. and you know looks kind of weird like that's the person you're more likely to pick Mm -hmm. you know I, i think it's really as simple as that in a lot of ways the other thing that kind of changed over this period of time, <laughs> I titled this section in my notes, Magical Law. <laughs> um, the thing that changed is sort of the the legal system in Europe. Now, again, this ch- kind of changes from region to region. And one thing I'd like to point out is that at this point in England, there's already a system in place where it's a jury system. There were very few witchcraft trials in England. And a lot of people have pointed out that it's because it's a lot harder to prove to a jury beyond reasonable doubt that somebody has performed witchcraft Mm -hmm. than in a lot of these other places where, I mean, I've titled the episode Witch Trials. That's maybe not the best um, title for it in that we're not talking about going before a judge and in front of a jury of your peers and having lawyers argue the case, because that's really not what happened here. Mm -hmm. So, in the medieval era, law tended to look like this. Two people have a dispute. They decide to bring it before the local magistrate. The burden of proof is entirely on the accuser. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay. There are a couple of ways for the accuser to, to prove their case. Uh, one is spontaneous confession from the accused. So they must freely admit to having done the thing that they're being accused of. Okay. Okay. They needed proof uh, as clear as the noon sun. So something that's so obvious that there's no there's no denying it, okay. basically. So beyond re- reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. which is pretty much something that we still have today. That's a very important thing. Um, or something called an ordeal. So basically what this meant for the accuser is that they better be really, really sure about the thing that they're going to the law about, right? Yeah. Because not only would they not win their case if they failed to prove it, but often they would be given the punishment that the accused would have been given if they had been successful. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So, I mean, you want to be really, really sure. Mm-hmm. A lot of what this is, was designed to do is cut down on frivolous lawsuits. They didn't want people going to the magistrate over every little quibble that they had. But the other is to protect, and, and I mean this is this is sort of the, the the other side of the same coin. But it was it was also to protect like people from being accused of all sorts of stuff. So part of it is the magistrates don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. The other part is to protect people from lawsuits in which they didn't actually do anything. Yeah. Because this is a point in time where things are a little bit harder to prove. I mean, we don't have fingerprinting. We don't have, you know, there's so many things missing from the legal system to make this a, a good system. Now, I mentioned ordeal before. Ordeals could be a number of things. Basically, an ordeal was an appeal to God to tell them which of these people was right. So you get things like ordeal by flame, which was that the accused would be burnt with a hot poker. 
they would wrap it up for three days and then examine the burn. And a priest would look at the burn and determine whether or not it had healed enough to demonstrate that God was on the side of the person that had been accused. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's like super subjective. It is. I mean, the, the the point being that, like, if it started to fester, they would say that, mm-hmm. you know, God had deemed this person guilty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it is very subjective, though. We also had the trial by water, which was basically dumping someone in the, into the water. <laughs> Originally in medieval law, if they floated, they were innocent. Because mm-hmm. if they sank, God was de facto executing them by drowning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um And a third one that was very common was trial by combat, which was that the accuser and the accused would fight in a legally sanctioned battle, and the one that died was guilty. So, I mean, if the accused won the fight, then they were innocent, and they had had the satisfaction in in a legal sense of of having inflicted punishment on their accuser uh, Mm -hmm. for accusing them of this crime. A lot of this stuff sounds really arbitrary, especially the trial by combat. Yeah. One thing that some sociologists have noted about the ordeals is that if you, as an individual, honestly believe that the ordeals work, that it gives such a psychological edge to the innocent party that it could actually have a very strong impact on the outcome of the ordeal. Yeah, absolutely. Which is kind of interesting to think about. I mean, you, you kind of go, well, why why does why would God be intervening on two dudes duking it out <laughs> with a couple of swords over, you know, whether or not one of them stole the other's cow? Yeah. God probably has better things to do. But no, they believe that he was, he was going to help them settle this thing. Mm-hmm. And if you stole the cow, you're going to be scared. Because in your mind, you're going, well, <laughs> I'm going to lose this one because God already knows what I did. Mm-hmm. So that was medieval law. Then this thing called the Inquisition happened. Uh, the Inquisition had a couple of different uh, techniques for determining innocence or guilt, mostly because the crimes that were being studied in the Inquisition were spiritual in nature. You can't really do it the same way. You can't have proof beyond reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So they allowed confession by torture. You could torture someone twice and... Uh, they don't they don't really specify how long you can torture them. If they hold out through both tortures, mm-hmm. then usually they're let go. Right. Usually. Sometimes they're still imprisoned um, as a uh, unapologetic heretic. I mean, in, like Inquisition law is just crazy. Yeah. Um, if they confessed under torture, they had to stop torturing them, leave them alone for three days, and ask them again if their confession holds up. Hmm. If it does, they would be given the opportunity to repent, and their sentence would be based on, like, how severe their uh, heresy had been and how cooperative they'd been. Right, okay. If you confessed under torture and then recanted under the second round, you would be considered a relapsed heretic, and you would be put away. Oh, wow. What this means is that if you're being questioned by the Inquisition, your best bet, if you think about all the options, your best (laughs) bet is to confess to heresy... Uh, confirm your confession three days later and do whatever penance they give you. Yeah, if you want to live, that's a good way to go. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Now, I mean, the the inquisitors could also take your possessions, your home, your property in the in the course of all of this. But yeah. I mean, what are your options here? Once the witch trials started, they decided to basically use the uh, the Inquisition laws because they are also trying to investigate uh, a spiritual thing. So, confessions by torture. Again, people are kind of incentivized to confess to the thing that they're being accused of. Mm -hmm. You had lighter sentences for cooperation. Often what this meant in the case of witchcraft was to tell them who else in your coven, or who else is in your coven. Who else in the village is a witch. So the more names you named, the lighter sentence you got. So that would result in a lot of people turning on each other just to save themselves. Absolutely. So 
what you had over the 300 years that we're kind of looking at is sort of a slow trickle of like the occasional person being accused of witchcraft and usually just executed because of it. Very few of them actually got away. When they did, they usually just left and started mm -hmm. a new life in another village. But occasionally what you had was these rashes of people kind of turning on each other. And that's where the real hysteria came in. That's where the witch trials that we kind of hear about started. And once things got rolling, they never really stopped. So mm -hmm. uh, we'll take a quick break, and afterwards we'll talk about a couple of the more notable witch trials. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to let you know that there are a number of places you can get a bit more HI 101 in your lives if you're looking for it. Uh, obviously, there's the website that I mentioned at the end of each show, hi101.ca, where I post every episode, as well as the notes and corrections. If you haven't taken a look there before, please do. The notes have a lot of extra information that might have slipped through the cracks during recording. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash hi101podcast, and a Twitter account, also at hi101podcast. Those have been a bit more on the quiet side up until now, but they'll be getting a lot more active in the next little bit, so keep an eye out there. Finally, if you ever want to get a hold of me directly with corrections, suggestions, or just even to say hi, you can always email at contact at hi101.ca. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, we're back on HI101, here with Yumiko Hachinruther. Hello. And uh, I thought we'd just kind of finish things up with a few of the more notable witch trials. I mean, it was very widespread, so you had all these tiny ones we were talking about before, but what you would see every once in a while, especially in an urban setting, so a city with lots of people, is you would really get up this momentum of somebody confessing, accusing a couple dozen other people that they knew of those few dozen other people, some more of them... Conf or confessing and naming some more names, it just it just grows exponentially. Uh, a few of them that I've got here, um, mostly in Germany, again as as I noted, because they're and the reason it happens so much in Germany is a they were having so many religious problems with these tiny states that there was a lot more uncertainty there. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at something like France, uh, France was Catholic. The king was Catholic, and he said that all of France was Catholic too, and it was pretty clear which between Catholic and Protestant was kind of winning the day. So, mm -hmm. you know, if some Protestantism grew up, which happened from time to time, it was fairly easily suppressed. Yeah. Whereas in Germany, with these tiny, tiny states that often uh, what would happen was leadership would change and sometimes it would change so that uh, the leader of another state would take over a second state and then the state religion would flip, things like that. Uh, there's a lot more uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So... The other thing you had there was these these trials that were basically just uh, torture sessions, interrogations, and then summary executions. That that's that's really how you get the hysteria going. Yeah, is people disappearing and then turning up a few day, a few days later in the middle of the town square. That that freaks people out a little bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one we've got here is in Trier in Germany. Um, and this ran actually between 1581 and 1593, so it was a fairly long uh, witch hunt. The Archbishop Schonenberg started by targeting pro Protestants, so he went and hunted down all the Protestants that he could find, then Jews, and finally witches. So basically everyone that was left after the other two major persecuted groups were gone. Sounds like a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about Trier was that he targeted all classes, and that's something you'll notice about the bigger witch hunts, is that they're the only ones where nobles are actually mm -hmm. accused of witchcraft. Often, if you kind of dig into the story a little bit, which we won't really do, we don't have time, if you dig into the story a little bit, you'll find that there's political motivations for this a lot of the time. Yeah. Because when you look at it on a societal level, what it seems like may have been happening is the people at the top, the nobles, the clergy, the educated people, I mean, they're the ones that are creating the idea of what a witch is. I mean, mm -hmm. you have a clergyman writing the book uh, Malleus Maleficarum. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, uh, Hammer of the Witches. Uh, it was basically a guide to all of the things that witches do. And it was written by a priest, <laughs> and it was weirdly explicit and weirdly specific. 
What made him the authority to write that book? Strangely enough, three years after he wrote it, it was uh, condemned by the Catholic Church. Oh. They said, no, this isn't true. Um, <laughs> that didn't stop people from using Malleus to hunt witches. Okay. So that's kind of the key there. Like, it's this... Yeah. this, this um, it's going on in two, on two levels. The Catholic Church is going, no, that's not true. But there are these witch hunters on the civic level mm-hmm. that have learned from the Malleus Maleficarum what witches do, what they look like, how to find a witch. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're transmitting this knowledge to common people. And what you've got is common people who quite literally believe all of this stuff. And then you've got this top tier of people who are kind of creating this knowledge, yeah. sometimes willfully, Whatever their intentions may be, sometimes good, sometimes, you know, good and misguided, sometimes Questionable. actually <laughs> quite malevolent uh, in terms of sort of changing the, the, the popular focus of, of um, uh, anger, unrest. What that results in is that when you see these bigger witch hunts where nobles are being targeted, often you'll find that the people targeting the nobles are other nobles who stand to gain a lot by accusing the, these uh, this first group of nobles. Right. So the common people are just sort of collateral damage. The nobles are actually losing major political holdings in all of this. Mm-hmm. And there are other nobles that are profiting greatly. Okay. So the the thing about Trier is that, I mean, you got things like, there, there was a name, uh, there was a man named uh, Dietrich Flod who basically said, guys, there's no witches here, calm down. And, like, a week later was accused of witchcraft and executed. <laughs> oh, no. He was very critical of Schonenberg, the, the, the archbishop, and immediately accused of of witchcraft and executed. And this does two things. Number one, discredits what he said initially. Number two, scares anyone else off of yeah. of being critical because you saw what happened to Flav. Why wouldn't you do that as well, right? 368 people were killed within the city walls alone. There are records, I mean, the records are really unclear on most of these things. As many as a thousand people died uh, in this 12-year period. Mm-hmm. There were two, there were 22 villages in the region. Of those villages, two of them were left with only one woman each. Oh my goodness. It was really quite... Uh, That's brutal. Yeah, it was very, very comprehensive. And I mean, you know, like we, we talked before about how much more frequently women were were targeted by men. Or than men, sorry. There are a lot of reasons proposed for this. Sometimes it's um, because they tended to be um, less educated and people tended to see them as more likely to be targeted by, to be targeted successfully by supernatural forces. Mm. Um, but there was definitely this this idea that that uh, witches were more likely to be female and therefore more women were targeted for witchcraft. Why was it believed that witches were more likely to be female? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just straight-up sexism, to be honest with you. They believed that uh, a man would be... It, you know, they talk about things like constitution and right. things like that. They, they basically believed that uh, a man would be more able to resist the temptation of the supernatural than a woman would be. Does that kind of, like, stem back to, like, the Adam and Eve thing, where, like, Eve bit the apple? Uh, like, there was there definitely like undertones of that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's also... But, but I mean, the, the other interesting thing about this is we talked in the, in the first half about incubi and succubi. Mm-hmm. When a woman was seduced by an incubus, it's because she failed... She, she personally failed to resist the temptation. Right. When a man was uh, seduced by a succubus, it was believed that there was nothing he could have done to, reduce, uh, to resist these infernal forces. So, I mean, there's definitely a double standard as to, mm-hmm. um, in terms of gender, as to what's expected of people to, to resist these forces. So, if a man were to be accused of witchcraft, then... Would he get off on like a lighter sentence, or would he face the same consequences and punishment that a woman would? He would definitely face the same punishments. Okay. I mean, generally, this this results in execution. Yeah. There's so like, the, oh, like, yeah, okay. Yeah, there's the line in Deuteronomy, right? Thou yeah. shalt not suffer a witch to live. Mm-hmm. That that got referred to quite a bit in this in this period of time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if he was successfully accused of witchcraft, then it was uh, it, it, he was he was looking at the same sentence. It's just that the things that a man was accused of doing through 
um, malefici tended to be a lot different. Okay. Uh, men's crimes tended to be more targeted in terms of what they were accused of. So they had a feud with a certain family and therefore targeted that family mm-hmm. or used their witchcraft for gaining wealth or something like that. Whereas women tended to be accused of things that were more chaotic and senseless. So things like natural disasters ruining crops. Okay. Um, or they tended to do things like target scorned lovers. They tended to do things like... I, I mean, they, their crimes tended to be a little bit more... Or accused crimes, I should say. Tended to be more uh, sexual in nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was this. There, there's this one surprisingly common one where uh, witches were accused of uh, stealing a man's penis and refusing to give it back until he did something for her. (laughs) And so in this case, the man who actually committed the crime wasn't held liable because he was simply doing it because a witch wouldn't give him his penis back until he did did the crime. Okay. (laughs) And, and, And a woman would be blamed for that. Right. Now, you look at this now and kind of go, that's super convenient for this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, A, he's got, he's got his penis back, so he can't prove to anyone that it was ever gone. <laughs> and also, you know, he, he committed a crime, but he gets off scot-free, whereas this woman is being yeah. charged for but she causing gave it. it back to him. <laughs> there should be some kind of lenience for that. Uh, but she did it through magical means, which are inherently evil. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no getting around that. So, yeah, in terms of in terms of difference between genders, I mean, yeah, women were getting the short end of the stick, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the magic that, that each gender was co- was committing was completely different. So yeah, that's basically all I wanted to say about Trier. There was an instance in North Berwick, which was a um, a port town in Scotland in 1590. Uh, King James VI was nearly capsized by storms while sailing back from Denmark. He had had actually just gone and gotten married. He was bringing his bride back to to Scotland, and he was nearly Mm -hmm. capsized. He had to stop on the shore for weeks. And accusations were flying on both sides of who had caused the storm, who nearly caused, or who nearly killed, or which nearly killed the king. Clearly, a jealous lady who well, did not want him to get married. There was a witch hunt in both the the court of Denmark and the court of Scotland mm-hmm. uh, to find out who did this. Uh, Any uh, and several nobles were were found responsible for it. It ran for two years, implicated seventy people. It all began with one woman named Agnes Simpson, who was held in a in a witch's bridle. Do you know what that is? No. Basically, it's a uh, there's there's sort of a metal band that runs around the neck, so you you're you're, you're held standing to a wall, mm-hmm. and up from this band there are uh, iron spikes, which dig in between your clenched teeth, and your cheeks, the inside wow. of your cheeks. Yeah. It's incredibly painful. It's it's yeah. <laughs> horrendous. I mean, the, the the things that were used for torture in this period of time were just gruesome. Agnes Simpson implicated several people, and it just sort of expanded from there because everyone's trying to figure out who tried to kill the king. There was this fervor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, over 70 people were killed in, in that particular witch hunt. Wow. In Wurzburg, Germany, Wurzburg was what's called a, a prince bishopric, which means that the head of state was also a bishop. There's a reason that the separation of church and state is a thing. <laughs> uh, he decided, uh, and this ran from 1626 to 1631, he decided to uh, push for a witch hunt. He was uh, very concerned about the witch problem. Over 200 uh, people were killed in the city, up to 900 in the entire region. And the people that they were killing were indiscriminate, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean, they were killing actors, they were killing vagrants, they were killing politicians, nobles, anyone that was deemed too attractive, uh, because that could only be achieved through witchcraft, clearly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the number of of children alone that were killed because, you know, they happened to be passing through town and were homeless is is amazing, just to look at the lists. That's disturbing. Absolutely. And again, it's this it's this hysteria that gets that gets started of someone being convinced that there are witches among us, picking the person that seems most likely, managing to get a confession out of them, and managing to get them to name names. All of a sudden, this snowball starts rolling, right? Mm-hmm. Bamberg, Germany, again, 1626 to 1631, between 300 and 600 people executed. You know, we're, we're talking about a five-year period. Torsaker, Sweden, 1675. The witnesses were almost all children. 
Really? The parish priest, it, it was all prosecuted by one parish priest. Okay. He asked two boys to stand at the si- or at the doors of the parish church and watch everyone that came in because he believed that they were capable of seeing an invisible devil's mark on their forehead. So they would stand there at, other, at either side of the door and watch for people and point them out. Interestingly enough, uh, at one point they pointed out his wife. Oh, wow. When they realized who it was, they claimed that the light was in their eyes. Convenience. They, they recanted. But wouldn't, like, having this ability to see an invisible devil's mark be, like, indicative of some kind of power? Like, That's a great question. Uh, I believe the rationale there was that they were blessed by God with that ability. Oh, okay. But, I mean, the the, the, the mental gymnastics you get into mm-hmm. uh, in a witch craze are just... I mean, <laughs> they're, they're insane. In this village, 65 women and 6 men were beheaded and burned in a single day. The town never really recovered from that. They ended up driving out this parish priest. The two boys were found killed outside of town not that long after. Mm. They never found who was responsible. I mean, like, the thing about that one was the, the, was the, the children witnesses. I mean, yeah. kids, kids will say anything you want them to say, really. They're very yeah. unreliable. I mean, eyewitnesses are unreliable enough, but, you know. Children, yeah, especially in a situation like that where you know that authorities want you to produce certain kinds of claims and information. Exactly. It's not that hard to get those kinds of answers. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the one that everyone likes to talk about. Salem? Salem. (laughs) Massachusetts, 1692 to 1693. You'll notice that it's kind of after the the peak of the witch trials. All of this other stuff was kind of in between like the late 1500s and the mid-1600s. New England didn't really have a problem with uh, witchcraft. They didn't, like, there weren't many trials there, which is kind of interesting. The settlers of New England tended to be religious outsiders themselves uh, in a lot of cases, especially Massachusetts. Uh, the whole population, or the majority of the population, I should say, were Puritan. Um, Puritanism was a branch of Calvinism, which was sort of a second wave of the Protestant Reformation. Calvinists tended to be a little bit more severe uh, in their beliefs than than Lutherans in that they tended to value things like modesty. They tended to issue things like, say, like all of their, their churches tended to be very plain, things mm-hmm. like that. They tended to value modest dress, things like that. The Puritans were even kind of a... a they were even more strongly conservative than your average, you know, Swiss Calvinist. Mm-hmm. They thought things like toys and dolls were fr- frivolous nonsense uh, yeah. that distracted people from important pastimes like learning the Bible. Right. They refused, and I mean, this is a thing that, that still comes up in certain Christian sects today, but uh, they, they refused to have any music that was accompanied by musical instruments. Mm-hmm. So singing only, there was no dancing, no consumption of alcohol. Like, very, very conservative lifestyles. What about instruments associated with the church, like, say, the organ? No. Singing in the church, any singing of hymns, unaccompanied. Okay. Yeah. There was no organ in the church. Mm. Yep. The population of Salem and the villages directly around Salem were regarded as overly quarrelsome, is the way they tended to put it. <laughs> there were a lot of disputes between neighbors. And they went through a number of ministers just before this witchcraft scare mm-hmm. that basically didn't want to be minister there anymore because they spent less time doing church type things and more time doing breaking up arguments between mm-hmm. uh, residents type things. So the whole thing began when two girls, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, uh, began having fits is what they called them. Betty was the daughter of the new Reverend Samuel Paris. And they had sort of the the local doctor examine the girls, and he believed that the fits were beyond anything that's explainable by a medical condition. So he he did not believe it to be, uh, you know, epilepsy. He didn't believe it to be any sort of uh, neurological disorder. And kind of went back to Reverend Paris about this and told him that his concerns were that it was spiritual in nature. A number of other girls also began having these fits, and 
they started looking around for some sort of explanation of what was going on here. Three women were accused of witchcraft in February 1692. Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and uh, a slave woman named uh, Tichuba. Sarah Good was a homeless beggar. She rejected Puritan ideals. She thought they were ridiculous. And she just sort of begged around town. Mm -hmm. So that fits one of our kind of criteria for who tends to get uh, accused in the first wave. Sarah Osborne very rarely attended meeting hall, so she didn't go to church. And there was some there was some evidence that one of the girls who did the accusation, there was actually a family feud between uh, Sarah Osborne's family and this girl. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of questioning as to whether or not the girl was coached to uh, accuse Sarah Osborne. Mm, okay. Uh, so that fits a couple of our other regular <laughs> criteria for who gets accused first. And finally, Tichuba, I mean, she wasn't white. Yeah. There is some speculation that Tichuba, depending on what... We don't know where she came from. There's some accounts that say that she was uh, African, of African descent. Others say that she was um, Native American. Still others say that she was uh, Mesoamerican. So we don't know where she came from, but, but depending on the the uh, tradition that she came from, could have been um, versed in uh, voodoo or something like that, something more... Uh, shamanistic. She might have also done more sort of just for fun type Mm -hmm. divination stuff. So, you know, your palm reading or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's some suggestions that Tichuba, because she was, uh, she knew the first two girls, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. There's some speculation that she had been doing some sort of uh, palmistry or or fortune telling to help the girls find out who they were going to marry someday. Mm -hmm. And some people have speculated that these girls being raised with Puritan ideals were so guilty about what they had done because they know that divination is witchcraft and that witchcraft is against the law of God that uh, the fits were actually psychosomatic. Interesting. Yeah. Again, there's zero, there's zero proof for this, right? Yeah, but it's an interesting theory. It is an interesting theory. So... Tichuba was accused specifically of enticing girls with tales from the Malleus Maleficarum, Hammer of the, Hammer of the Witches, basically saying that she had read this book, which is an interesting accusation seeing as she was a slave and probably not literate, mm-hmm. that she knew, well, at least knew of this book, and that rather than using these tales of what witches did as a warning of mm-hmm. the evils of witchcraft, was actually using stories like, you know, things like the succubi, as a way of getting girls interested in witchcraft. Mm-hmm. There was a second round of accusations, and this time, this was based on some confessions from the first three women, and this time some you know upstanding members of the society were accused. Now people were panicked, because all of a sudden, if these women were capable of witchcraft, anybody could be. Yeah. Yeah. By May, dozens of people were accused. Magistrates were arresting people and questioning them, trying to figure out what was going on. And in June, something called a court of Oyer and Terminer was uh, was convened. What that means is to to hear and prosecute, uh, or sorry, to hear and determine. Sorry. Essentially, what that means is that they're going to decide what's going on right on the spot. Okay. So no jury, no long extended thing, no uh, lawyers, just witnesses. Mm -hmm. They are going to hear what you are accused of, they are going to listen to witnesses against you, they'll listen to what you have to say, and they will decide what to do with you all at once. Okay. The first five women were hanged on July 19th, so we're a couple of months in, that's it. Mm -hmm. All of the executions at Salem were hangings. There's this idea of all witch trials going to sort of burnings at the stake. Really not true. It wasn't that common. There was a lot more uh, hanging or beheading when it mm-hmm. came to executing witches. But that that uh, kind of mental image of the burning at the stake is, is kind of ingrained in public consciousness. Mm-hmm. Really not the most common way of, of witches to be executed. It's complicated and it's really, really cruel and... As much as people wanted to get rid of witches, uh, it's a hard one to watch. Yeah. So, anyways, everything in Salem was was hanging. The executions kind of continued throughout summer. The court was dismissed in October, um, immediately after 
uh, on the orders of, of the governor, uh, Governor William Phipps, dismissed by order of the governor immediately after his wife was accused. Oh. Mm-hmm. Convenient. Very. A new court was convened in January 1693, and it started hearing sort of the backlog of, of accusations. All were found not guilty. Uh, this one was a proper court with a jury, with like proper mm-hmm. proceedings, all of that. People were brought in from the outside to listen to the cases. Mm-hmm. Those that were still in jail were acquitted. And basically the whole thing was over by early 1693. A total of 20 people were executed in these few months. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, Tichaba was never executed. She was released. No one knows where she went after the trials. Really? Yeah, which makes for some interesting... interesting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it it leads to some interesting speculation. Yeah. Not that that's going to get us anywhere, but you kind of wonder. Yeah. Uh, She was so integral to the beginning of the trial that... Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's plenty of fiction that deals with it, with uh, Tichiba and what happened to her and how she fits into the whole thing. Yeah, I'm surprised that she wouldn't have been executed. Like, I would have thought she would have been, like, one of the first ones to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a lot of people that are really curious about what exactly happened there. Yeah. I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately. So, what happened in Salem? People have suggested, as I said before, psychosomatic uh, reactions to sort of an intense feeling of personal guilt. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's that's one thing about all of these witch trials. A lot of people who confess to witchcraft honestly believe that they had done something wrong. Yeah. Which is kind of weird because, like, aren't you pretty sure that you've never gone to <laughs> a Sabbath and, you know, like, done yeah. all these terrible things? But no, they, they felt like maybe there was a possibility that they'd done these things and forgotten or that they were half-remembering Yeah, things. like if they had been possessed or something. Exactly. And maybe they had their memories wiped. So when they were confessing, sometimes it was out of a sense of practicality. This is the best way to get out of the situation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was because they honestly believed they had done something wrong. Or false memories. That true. Yeah. yeah, that too as well. Uh, a couple other possibilities, specifically in Salem, but but have been proposed for, for other places, are things like uh, an outbreak of encephalitis. Encephalitis is a, uh, a disease that's characterized by a swelling of the brain, mm-hmm. which makes people act in strange ways. People have suggested sleep paralysis. One of the things that came up in, in terms of evidence for Salem was that people had seen um, spectral images of their attackers in some form or another, often late at night. Mm -hmm. So sleep paralysis is interesting stuff. Look into it. But often what happens during sleep paralysis is you feel like there's a presence in your room or you feel like you can see somebody in your room uh, when you can't move your limbs, which is terrifying and... uh, Pretty scary stuff. Yeah. And and I mean, if if you're in the middle of a witch outbreak, that form might look like somebody you know, and that might be pretty good evidence. Another one, you know, another piece of evidence they were going off of was the touch test, which was basically they would bring these girls who had had fits into the room, and they believed that when the witch who had caused them touched them, the fits would stop. So these girls would begin having fits, and anyone that was accused would touch them one by one. Mm -hmm. And whoever was touching them when it stopped, they believed that was the witch that had caused it in the first place. Wow. So... As you can imagine, the the potential for abuse is a little bit high there, especially (laughs) if they're faking the fits in the first place for attention, which is another thing that that they thought may have been the case. I mean, it sounds like life in Salem may have been pretty boring. Yeah. And I mean, looking for attention is nothing new, but man, if you're not allowed dolls... Yeah, no dolls, no games, no music. Nothing. Nothing at all. Yeah. Maybe you might go to some extremes for looking for some attention. We don't know. Finally, and this is one that's come up and has become more uh, popular in the last few years, well, a few decades, I should say, is something called ergotism. Ergotism is a disease that's caused by a fungus that grows in rye. So they believe that the the village's uh, grain storage, their grain supply, had been infected by this fungus. And this fungus is actually what LSD is is derived from originally. Yeah. So what they basically thought happened here is that everyone was tripping simultaneously. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, you you hear stories occasionally of people being given LSD without their permission, and it never really goes all that well. No. It's apparently a terrifying experience. (laughs) 
if we're talking about 1692 and you are a Puritan in Massachusetts, how are you going to explain going on a crazy hallucinogenic trip? (laughs) I mean, none of these explanations are really... Anytime you see an article that says, we've explained what happened at Salem, just ignore it. It's the same as when they say that they figured out who the real Jack the Ripper is. It's the same as, you you know, it's not... They may have found some intriguing evidence, but at this point in time, the likelihood of figuring out exactly what happened is pretty much limited by our ability to travel in time and go back and see for ourselves. It's a little too long afterwards. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't really know. But Salem is so intriguing because it's really... I mean, there were a couple of other cases of witchcraft and witch trials in the New World, but nothing nearly on this scale. Mm-hmm. And it's pointed to constantly, especially in American popular culture, as an example of what moral hysteria can do. Because, I mean, all of the women who were accused of witchcraft, witchcraft in Salem have been posthumously pardoned. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about something that's not real. We're talking about supernatural powers. We're talking about people making pacts with Satan. We're talking about flying through the air. That's not... None of these women were doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's there there are belief systems today that that relate to European shamanism that will that will refer to themselves as witches. That's not what these people were looking for. You know, it's not the same thing whatsoever. None of these women were doing this stuff. At the most, any of these witches that were accused of witchcraft may have gone through some of these rituals intending to harm someone without actually having any real results. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were accused of witchcraft and they found the equivalent of a doll with some pins stuck in it in your home, yeah, you were probably going to be found guilty, but you probably believed yourself to be guilty too because you had actually mindfully tried to work harmful magic on someone. Yeah. But the majority of these people were regular people. They were being accused because it was convenient to their neighbors to get rid of them. They were being accused because they were uh, antisocial. They were not part of the social fabric of that that particular community. Mm-hmm. They were being accused because of their religious beliefs. They were being accused because uh, because they were being thrown under the bus by other people who had already been accused. All of this is basically just to take people's minds off of the things that were bothering them in their lives that they had no explanation for. Mm-hmm. Because it's a convenient thing. I mean, if you've just lost everything, if you're a subsistence farmer and you've just lost everything, you want some sort of explanation to point to as to why this has happened to you. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're, you know, a devout person, especially if you feel like you've done everything that you can to be a good Christian, to garner help from God. When, when bad things happen and you don't have a good explanation for that, you know, it's really, you know, you sidestep, you sidestep a really difficult theological problem. You know, why do bad things happen to good people if you say, because witches do because them. Witches. <laughs> because witches. Because witches are the ones that are doing it to us. Uh, it's handy. Mm-hmm. It's convenient. It's terrible. But it played an important part in society in, in Europe for 300 years. Yeah, when you break it down like that, it's, it's easy to see how people can jump to those kinds of conclusions and mm-hmm. feel like they're doing it from a rational place or from a spiritually enlightened place. Yes. So Absolutely. I think that's what makes it so scary. Yes. And I mean, it, it all depends on those things that came before, on the, uh, mm-hmm. the persecution of the, the Knights Templar, of the, the slaughter of the Waldensians, and the, the, the misinformation about their belief systems, uh, about the, uh, the increased power of demons in the psyche of Europe. All of that stuff was necessary for people to believe in the type of witchcraft that they were persecuting yeah. in the early modern period. So, why did it end? A couple of reasons. The Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, is really where it peaked. All of that uncertainty that we talked about in Germany. The, the, the Treaty of Westphalia that ended all of that, that sort of helped people to self-determine their religion, really helped kind of uh, abate people's fears about their own spirituality. Mm-hmm. It gave them something to kind of latch onto as a constant, especially, you know, in Germany. You also have the lack of solid evidence for witchcraft. For over 300 years, they looked for witches and found almost nothing to uh, nothing concrete to point to as yeah. being evidence of witchcraft. 
I mean, Europe was growing at this point in time, right? Like there, there were more and more urban areas. There were less and less places that you could get a few dozen women and Satan together <laughs> to, to have a weird incestuous orgy um, and kiss him on his butthole. Yeah. That was less and less plausible. That was less and less plausible. Changing laws made convictions of which is more, uh, more difficult. For example, in, in the 1730s, I believe, there was a law in... 1740s, I'm sorry. There was a law in England that basically outlined what witchcraft was and took out the definition that we've been working with this whole time of making a pact with Satan and really made any witchcraft laws about people who were using things like palmistry or cold reading or mm-hmm. other sort of parlor tricks to cheat people out of money. Right. And basically legally completely changed the the idea of witchcraft. And now there was nothing to to prosecute in terms of devil worship. Right. Now that was England, but I mean things like that started changing throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. There was the dawn of the Enlightenment, which saw things like the the advent of the scientific method, which helped to start explaining some of the things in the world around us in ways that weren't a witch did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a positive change, personally. <laughs> you also get this idea... I, I mean, the people in the in the early modern period were scared because they felt like they didn't have a lot of agency about, on the world around them. The world was in a very strict hierarchy, right? You have God at the top, then all of his angels, uh, and, I mean, demons were kind of on the same plane as angels. Demons were often considered angels who had fallen along with Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Then you had kings, then you had nobles, then you had everybody else, and then you had all the animals going in a very specific hierarchy, and you could not move throughout that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And when things, uh, when things were bad in the world around you, you only had as much influence on the world around you as you did within your own strata and below. So as a common person... You know, you had a lot of power on the animals in the world around you. Yeah. But you couldn't do anything about the stuff that was happening uh, on the noble plane, and you certainly had no power on anything that was happening on the divine plane. Mm-hmm. Because when storms came up, that was God's domain, and there was nothing you could do about it. The Enlightenment saw this idea of individualism, that you have self-determination, that you have agency on the world around you, and not necessarily just on the things below you but that you personally could make a difference throughout the world. That difference might be very, very small, but you were capable of it. Mm -hmm. The strata kind of broke down a little bit during the Enlightenment. It's really interesting stuff. I'd love to talk about it in more detail at some point in time. But what that means is that you don't have to point to demons did it every time something goes bad. You can actually look for individuals causing problems. Yeah. Right? Because you, you take away power from this invisible domain and give it to people. And even if it meant blaming uh, nobility that are higher than you, you're still blaming a person. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, I think the final nail in the coffin was lack of support from academic elites who had always kind of driven this, this hysteria. I mean, Malleus Maleficarum wasn't reflecting the, the ideas of the people. It was invented by one man and that work ended up influencing the ideas of everyone below that. Right, mm-hmm. so for several different reasons, the the academics were were telling people witches are among you and they are causing problems. When they stopped telling people that, and especially when they started telling people, no, that's not really true, that idea just kind of went away. And it takes a little a little while sometimes to filter down, but it went away. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stranglehold on concepts on ideas both from academics and from the church, is is really not to be understated in this because all of this witch hysteria starts at the top and it starts with it starts with religious beliefs and it starts with political plays. And as much as it seems like something like, you know, finding the, the local weirdo and burning them at the stake for being a witch seems like it's a really isolated event and sort of a, a very strange and, and inexplicable thing to happen. When you look at it in the context of the changes that are happening in Europe during that 300-year period, it played a really important role in people's lives. Mm-hmm. It wasn't out of nowhere. And once it stopped playing that important life, or that important role, 
once there are other things that can kind of step into that void, people stopped blaming it on witches because it stopped being important to have witches around. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's the witch trials. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on with me today. Oh, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Estimates on the number of people killed under the charge of witchcraft in Europe vary between about 25,000 and 60,000 people over the 300-year period we've discussed in these two episodes. Perhaps not a large number when compared to war or disease or famine, but far from insignificant. Common people, and especially women, paid dearly for the convenience that the concept of witchcraft provided to Europe as a society, despite its complete lack of grounding in reality. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the gunpowder plot. That episode will be up on November 1st, just in time for Guy Fawkes Day. We'll see you then. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.